0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Market Scale Building Management Podcast Show. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. It is a beautiful Tuesday, and we are digging into some solid content. You know, I'm just going to cut it right to the chase. Today's two features are varied. But they both have an essence of responsiveness to them based on trends in the industry. So we're gonna be taking a look back at the 2015 gas line explosion in New York that started the initiative for stricter regulations for the whole industry and how facility managers are still adapting today. We'll also wrap up our mini-series on co-working with Mike LaRosa, a self-proclaimed co-working space influencer. He's been on twice before explaining the trends, benefits and applications of the co-working space and today We're going to be looking a little more at the different styles of co-working spaces. It's going to be a solid show. I'm excited to get you all this content. Didn't want to hold off too long, so we're going to jump right in. Oops, psych, we're not. You always got to get some classic Daniel Litwin voice of B2B storytelling for your podcast intros. And to start off this episode, I actually wanted to touch on a topic that we're not talking about in this episode, and that's IoT in the home. Why am I talking about IoT in the home? Well, it's something that I've been experimenting with personally. I was converted recently, not religiously or politically. I was converted um, IoT-ly because I purchased an Amazon Alexa, uh, an Echo Dot, and I wasn't sure if it was going to be useful But I thought, hey, you know what, I've got the money, Um, I've got some smart bulbs that I was already using with a different app to change colors in my studio space, and hey, maybe I can automate them. So got the Echo Dot, and now I cannot stop telling Alexa to change the studio to indigo, to cyan, to orange-red. It is addicting, let me tell you. And it definitely opened my eyes a little bit to this general trend of IoT in the home. The statistics are pretty staggering when you look at how many people actually use smart home devices. Matova, back in May of 2018, released a report saying that 90% of U.S. consumers now own some form of smart home device, meaning it's not an up-and-coming trend, it is the now. We actually did a podcast recently with Universal Screens. They're a screen provider, and a lot of their screens integrate with home automation systems. The podcast hasn't posted yet, but it'll be out very soon, and we really got to look at how the consumer and the commercial market are starting to blend, and that's bringing costs down. It's making IoT more accessible, and it's really getting rid of that DIY feel for the consumer and really replacing it with more custom solutions that are affordable and not you know, your $10,000 operations. So it's an exciting time for IoT in the home, and I wanted to bring this up to just ask you, the audience, what do you think is gonna be the big smart thing in 2019 within the home? You think it's gonna be smart lights, smart thermostats, maybe your smart coffee maker, whatever it is, what do you think is gonna be the biggest smart item that's gonna sell the best, um, is going to integrate with the home most frequently, and let's avoid the Alexas and the homes, or the Google homes. ...of the IoT world because those are kind of necessary to put everything else together, right? So we're talking the amenities, the smart freezer, the smart fridge, the smart washing machine. I'd love to know your thoughts. Shoot us an email, tweet at us, Instagram, comment us, leave your thoughts. Let us know what you think is going to be the biggest smart trend of 2019. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into our first feature... Looking at co-working spaces, and like smart devices, they aren't the next big thing, they're the now, and they're the now of the modern office. They're influencing workflows, acoustic design, business models, collaborative technology, the list really goes on and on. For our first feature, we're finishing our mini-series on the benefits, challenges, and applications for co-working spaces, this time analyzing the three main styles of co-working spaces and which ones are going to see the most traction in 2019. All right so today we're rejoined for the third time by our building management frequent collaborator Mr. Mike LaRosa. He's the co-founder of Agora RDM and Mike has been on our building management podcast two times before giving us a rundown of the state of coworking spaces. Uh, We've looked at the history. We've looked at the practicality. We've looked at how do you even begin to convert your space into a coworking space? A lot of great tips. And for our third and final chunk of this little mini series on coworking, Mike and I are going to chat more on the different types of coworking spaces, something that I don't think is talked about often, but there are very different styles for a coworking space. Some work better for different industries than others. Um, and he's going to give us a, a deep look at which ones are his favorites, which ones work best for what kinds of industries, and why we should continue to find unique ways to create co-working spaces for each kind of scenario. Mike, great to have you on the podcast. How are you
1: doing today? I'm awesome. Thanks for having me back.
0: Absolutely. Always a pleasure getting your insight on co-working. You are you are the co working influencer. If I had to name one, I'd say it's, it's definitely Mike LaRosa.
1: Oh, shucks. Well, <laughs> <laughs> if there's something to be, then
0: I'm happy to be that. <laughs> I love it. Well, all right, Mike, let's go ahead and jump into our main topic of conversation for today, which is wrapping up our look at co working spaces in general and the trends we've seen over 2018 and now leaking into 2019. So let's start with a little recap. I kind of already gave one, but I think our audience would like to hear it from you uh, on the last two episodes that we did on co-working and why that information
1: was valuable, if you just had to sum it up. Yeah, I I think that, Uh, my goal would be to get the point across that co-working can exist across any type of industry and any type of business goal. And so in previous episodes, we've talked about, um, you know, Agora RDM, we have five key operator kind of verticals or buckets, right? The independent owner operator, someone who is more of a community builder that, you know, has a smaller space, but a really active um, uh, community and and local industry connections, Um, the multiple location owner operator, kind of like the WeWorker Industrious, Um, existing businesses that we've worked with, such as Second City Comedy, uh, real estate developers, such as the first group in Dubai that wanted to put a co-working space into a hotel. And then the last bucket is just enterprise level space management. So whether it be an HR department or a COO that's looking as to how to either monetize the space that they're currently leasing or empower their remote teams with uh, tools that let them work wherever they are.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I love the trend of co-working spaces. Um, it's definitely empowered, I think, a lot of collaboration, um, a lot of innovation too. When you put creative minds in the same space and everyone's kind of on their own wavelength, but willing to learn and willing to share, you probably get some of the best work that you know, you'd know you ever get. Um, everyone is just personally motivated and everyone is, is looking to... Um, to have those big moments of inspiration, uh, I know there are a lot of trends that go along with co-working spaces, and a lot of a lot of subsequent trends, such as now having to deal with acoustic design challenges because as spaces get bigger and more cavernous, um, less walls, right? Then now you're ever having to deal with reverberating sound, and it's it's an interesting thing that's definitely changing up how facility managers approach um, managing their space, how AEC professionals consider um, designing their space and uh, putting it together and obviously operating it. So uh, let's dig into the different kinds of co-working spaces, which is our main topic of conversation for today. Uh, I guess to start off, when co-working spaces first took off, Mike, did you already see them have several iterations or was it, was it just something that evolved on its own, sort of natural selection style? We got different kinds of co-working spaces because we started to see needs for them.
1: A, a little bit of both. I mean, the, the, the core concept behind co-working is not new. Right. You know, Regis has been around for over 30 years and, you know, they were really the largest uh, known global brand to provide flexible workspace. Um, but, you know, with the advances in technology, it took uh, it beyond just having executives that had corporate budgets and corporate expense accounts that needed meeting space when they were on the road to uh, empowering anyone that had an iPhone in their hand to be able to run a business and then kind of have that residual kind of evolution of, okay, now that I can run my own business, am I really happy doing it in a lonely, you know, kitchen in my apartment by myself or in a loud, crowded, noisy cafe, coffee shop. And so I think that's what really led to, if you were to say, the first quote-unquote iteration of co-working. Right. Right. And then with each
0: industry, you get people that are looking for those same advantages of sharing a space and collaborating with other professionals. What would you say is an industry that really took on to co-working spaces immediately that you've seen thrive and um, almost transition fully over to co-working spaces? I don't know if we've seen any industries that have done that, but any that are Inching in that direction,
1: yeah, most definitely. I mean, shared kitchens are huge, and I think that that also is a a result of the the boom of food trucks, right? You know, food trucks need somewhere to do food prep at night. There's more people doing home based food businesses um, because they're trying to create products that are either vegan or gluten free or or you know dairy free or what whatnot. Um, so, shared kitchens would be one, and then that kind of overlaps into. The, what we talked about in the last episode, apps like uh, Spacious that turn empty restaurants into co-working spaces during the day. So just helping those restaurant owners, if they're only open for dinner, to help them monetize it during the day. If they've got tables, they've got chairs, they more than likely have Wi-Fi, so why not, you know, uh, uh, do a pop-up type co-working space there? Um If there was a second industry, I would say most definitely hotels, you're going to see this year some major global brands roll out uh, new marketing and new branding centered around the community meeting space, co-working and meeting space um, that's more accessible and more affordable in their lobbies and in other parts of their buildings.
0: So I think when we look at different kinds of co-working spaces, um, some of the main divisions we can see are co-working spaces adapting to existing business models. We can see co-working spaces that begin to set the tone for a business model, and then we see... Coworking spaces that are solely put in place to activate vacant space. Um, so why don't you walk our audience through this general categorization of co-working spaces and we'll break each one down for, you know, some of its challenges, some of its benefits and your favorite parts of each.
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, I, I think that the, the, the first one is uh, most definitely the first category would be the one that's that's really changing and or challenged the most, because at the end of the day, it's incredibly difficult to be profitable when you are in a traditional lease structure. If you don't have control over that building, the rents will go up on you. You might not be able to renew those le- that lease at the same terms. Um, you really have to sell a ton of private offices um, and uh, have a lot of members per uh, flex hot seat to be able to make that work. That You can't scale or grow the, the ratio as much as you could say a gym. Right? There's going to be a lot more people you can sell per treadmill than you can sell per hot desk. And so you know, we see these local independent owned spaces uh, thriving in the suburbs far more than in uh, downtown you know, central business districts. And what's really fascinating is the big guys, like we work in Industrious, their business models really are dependent on uh, mass transit users. And so, you know, people that aren't driving or don't have cars. And so uh, they really haven't made that big foray into the the burbs. Um, so it's really exciting to kind of see what's going on. Y- you do tend to have more of the freelancers or independent consultants or, you know, creatives that are Drawn to to those types of spaces, and you typically have maybe a little bit more of an authentic community, or even maybe a little bit of an older demographic that's not looking for the super hip, trendy neon lights and free flowing beer that, let's say, millennials would be going for. Um, the second category is these businesses and companies and, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 corporations that are trying to incorporate co-working into their business model. You know, I reference the project we did with Second City Comedy. You know, they've got this beautiful training center in Chicago. Their business model is not co-working. They're not looking to make money off of co-working per se, but they've got this beautiful facility that sits empty between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m., um, it's packed in the evening, but they do it just to bring more people into their space to share their story and to encourage people to maybe t- to consider taking a class or, or whatnot. Um, there's the hotels that I, I've referenced that are struggling to keep up with uh, meeting sales. You know, if you take a look at if you are booking a conference or even a boardroom meeting for 12, at a hotel you have to do a food and beverage minimum you have to then contract av and internet through a third party vendor co-working spaces provide all of that in one payment you don't have to worry about food and beverage minimum at all. You can order from wherever you can, you know, typically they all are wired with TVs and, you know, AirPlay or Chromecast. You've got the internet. Um, and so these companies are really starting to figure out how to to use space as a service to either add uh, another sales opportunity to their portfolio or, there's like the front port strategy, which Mozilla did in Singapore, they had all this extra space that they weren't utilizing. So they decided to open up complimentary co-working to some of the top contributing members of their open source community, just to leverage the benefits of what you referenced, we like to call it accelerated serendipity. The, the collaboration that can happen when people are just making those random meetings and running into each other or having, you know, conversations over lunch. Um, so that's really how existing businesses are starting to fold co working into their, their, uh, their companies and their, their, their business models. Wow.
0: Well, I mean, it sounds like every industry is finding some use for coworking, um, the fact that malls are taking advantage of this, I think, is a is a really cool step in the right direction. Because, yeah, you're right, um, the reign of the mall is definitely over. I'm not saying that malls all are going to close, but, y- you know, other than your staple few within the larger cities, just the idea of, of the mall isn't quite as popular. So how do you fill that space? How do you make that space valuable and then <laughs> turn your mall into something profitable? Finding the answer in co-working, I think, was probably pretty
1: unexpected. Oh, for sure. And, and it's not just in the retail. I mean, there's another space that I would uh, uh, would love to, to mention. It, it's called Relay Shop Spaces in Atlanta. Um, this concept's brilliant because what they do is that they do co-working for uh, drop shippers or co-working for uh, businesses that need warehouse space. And so they took over an empty warehouse and they've got office space in the front, private offices, flex desk. But the best part is that your membership comes with storage and with shared fulfillment services. And so they've actually been able to undercut Amazon of all companies when it comes to fulfillment services. And it's awesome because you can actually work from the same location where your products are being shipped, and so by hiring fulfillment staff, you know they're offering these small independent-owned businesses with resources that they would never be able to have otherwise. Um, so really, whatever space you have, anyone listening out there, if you're trying to fill it up or activate it, if you get creative enough, you you can make it happen using co-working as a tool.
0: So of those three that you mapped out, those three styles of co-working spaces, which would you say holds the most weight as the future of the co-working space? You know, where do you see
1: the most investment, the most use, uh, and why? Well, I, I see the most investment really coming into the retail uh space mainly because malls really especially in 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 the US malls are really suffering you know there's more retail square footage per capita like times 5 than any other country out there so i think because it's such a large amount of space there's going to be large you know corporations that are making significant investments but if i were to say Which trend really had the most longevity or the most impact? I got to say the the table co-working concept uh, for churches really is the perfect definition of an organization that's looking to either A, remain relevant, B, attract a new audience, or C, just find new revenue streams to cover the costs of maintaining their facility, especially as Studies come out saying that less and less Americans are are going to to churches or are uh, considering themselves religious. So, you know, I think table co working while it's a very specific niche application, I think it's the best way to represent the power and the ability that rolling out a co working uh, initiative or co working uh, program can have um, if you're trying to figure out how to fill that empty space. I know I'm personally
0: most interested in seeing how businesses that try to incorporate co-working into their space as part of the business model, uh, I'm trying to see how how that continues to evolve. Because the idea of not only utilizing co-working spaces in, because it allows you to save money on leases and allows you to collaborate with other industry professionals, but just the idea that you transform your business into something that thrives off of coworking, and coworking is integral to the structure of your company, is is a really interesting concept to me. Um, you know, taking this trend and transforming it into into a core of your business uh, and its operations. I'm interested to see how that pans out, and which businesses, especially large enterprise businesses, maybe start to make that shift and and find uh, at least even regional offices to begin to operate wholly as co-working spaces?
1: Yeah, I I think when you say it like that or when you focus on that type of uh, vertical or application, um, I would say uh, hotels and restaurants really will be the ones that are most focused on, uh, incorporating that into their existing model. Um, and then also figuring out how to leverage that benefit for their remote workforce, right? More and more companies are hiring folks that ne- don't necessarily work at headquarters or work where there's a, a local office. And so it's that blend of, okay, we can have it for ourselves and for our own employees and offer it as an additional product to service that's paired within with our existing offerings.
0: Well, Mike, I'd like to thank you for joining us on the podcast again and giving us this complete insight now on co working spaces. I feel like we've really dug into the uses, the practicality, how businesses should begin to adopt co-working spaces where they find most value it's it's been really really insightful to get this complete look from you and i know our conversations aren't over i'd love to get more insight on your trip to mexico your long-term stay now it's not just a vacation it is it is life now which is exciting and um uh, we really do appreciate your insight so thanks
1: again mike yeah always a pleasure thanks for having me and i I look forward to geeking out on co-working uh, again in the, the near future
0: Thanks again to Mike LaRosa for that great mini-series on co-working spaces. So now we bring our attention back to the States. We often look to New York City as a mecca for artistry, big business, and innovation. But being an aging city and a monstrously large one, it's also a city bound to start regulatory trends as well. The local government is actually passing new regulations in 2019 that are stricter on building owners and gas workers specifically in hopes to make gas lines safer. This is something that has kind of plagued New York City for a while. These new requirements definitely shake things up. They include a requirement for building owners to inspect exposed gas lines every five years. And require that certain workers take a safety course before messing with potentially explosive gas lines. So, I wanted to ask the question how are professionals adjusting to these regulations? Are they glad to have more oversight, or is it impeding their ability or efficiency for inspecting? Here's Market Scale host Shelby Skirhawk with Bill O'Brien. He's an associate chair of architectural engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. And Shelby and Bill comment on the changing regulations and the positives and negatives of more oversight for gas line inspection from improved safety to more training time required for workers. Let's jump in.
3: A building manager's son and a gas line contractor simply opened the door to the basement and in a flash they were killed the two were investigating a suspected gas leak after residents reported smelling natural gas. That 2015 gas line explosion in New York's East Village killed two and injured more than a dozen people, and it's just one of many explosions nationwide. In fact, there have been 646 gas distribution pipeline accidents over the past 20 years. That accounts for 300 fatalities and 1,200 injuries, according to 2017 data from the U.S. Pipeline Hazardous Materials and Safety Administration. Now, new stricter regulations for pipeline inspections are being rolled out borough by borough in New York City. That's to help make sure another explosion doesn't happen again. But there are implications for maintenance personnel who will now be responsible for performing inspections of exposed natural gas lines in their buildings. Regulations by New York's Department of Buildings that went to effect January 1st require building managers and owners to inspect exposed gas lines every five years. They're looking for corrosion or rust on these visible pipes. Also, certain workers must take a safety course before tinkering with potentially explosive gas lines. While these new regulations have gone into effect in New York City only, they might set a new precedent for safety and shared responsibility. For insight, I talked to Bill O'Brien, professor of civil engineering at the University of Texas. So Bill, uh, with this new law, it seems that building managers are gonna be more responsible for uh, their gas piping, at least within the building. So what do you think of this shift and, and is it a move in the right direction?
2: Well, well, certainly in a pipeline, you have a very distributed potential source of problems there, and so things can pop up really anywhere where that gas potentially is going to be exposed to oxygen and flame. It seems they're running that experiment in New York, and it's likely that after that experiment, we'll probably learn things and we would be likely to see that elsewhere in the country.
3: You see, the natural gas pipeline is a complex system of transmission lines, high and low-pressure lines, and relief valves that not a lot of people really understand. Natural gas is delivered directly to homes and businesses by this, elaborate pipe, by this elaborate pipeline network that transverses the entire United States. In fact, there's approximately 3 million miles of mainland and other pipelines that link natural gas production with consumers in homes, apartment buildings, businesses, and commercial offices. But, by nature, natural gas is a highly combustible, petroleum-based compound. And if leaked into the air, it can become a ticking time bomb. A lit cigarette is hot enough to ignite natural gas, as are matches, lighters, and even the sparks generated by a vehicle starting. However, the most surprising ignition sources are seemingly innocuous objects, such as cell phones, doorbells, light switches, and even static electricity from your clothes. These all can create sparks of sufficient heat to ignite the gas. Now, this isn't supposed to be a scary consumer news or PSA to call 811 before you do any digging in in your backyard or premises, which by the way you should. But it goes to show just how easily a natural gas pipeline leak can occur if the pipeline becomes compromised in any way. O'Brien The civil engineering professor at the University of Texas says that a deteriorating infrastructure is something we need to be concerned about. In many ways, actually, the issues that building managers face with aging buildings are very similar to the issues facing aging pipelines.
2: Well, our infrastructure is aging across the country. And in places like New York or the older, more established parts of the country, of course, the Uh, likelihood of failures uh, or problems is much higher there than other places, but it's not certainly not unique to New York City. It speaks to the need for us to educate society a bit more about infrastructure, because I think about infrastructure, it's in the background, it's there, you use it, you don't think about it until it's a problem. And so we have a lot of systems that we take essentially for granted in this country, and they for the most part have worked incredibly well until they don't, whether it's a gas explosion or we've had cases of bridge failures or uh, out in California, the uh, wildfires are now potentially attributed back to some of the power lines um, that's currently in the news right now. Uh, That that just speaks to the need for maintenance and education of our infrastructure and the costs for doing that. We as a society are, collectively creating a pretty big bill for deferred maintenance, and that bill is going to come due one way or the other. Um, It's probably a lot cheaper for our society to start to invest in education and maintenance and have some general agreement about how to move forward with it. Otherwise, it will be repeated failures and very expensive problems, whether it's explosions or bridge collapses or so on. The American Society of Civil Engineers puts out a scorecard every year about the nation's infrastructure and in general we're not doing well and the, the price tag for repair on a national level is in the billions and billions if not trillions of dollars which is really beyond what anyone has the capacity to pay. Um, what that really means is that we're going to have more problems and emergencies and it's likely as those happen locally we will find more regulation coming down or something to uh, increase the uh, chance of uh, watching for problems and distributing the cost of those problems across the country. We'll all bear it one way or the other, it's just a matter of how
3: The American Gas Association says that utilities nationwide are continually replacing older pipelines that are made of cast iron or certain types of steel. They're upgrading the nation's aging pipeline with newer steel or plastic pipes. That'll go a long way in preventing some natural gas catastrophes, but not all. The East Village explosion was caused by an illegal tap into the gas line. O'Brien says better oversight and more frequent checks may help prevent some of these things from happening.
2: But it is difficult to keep track of a highly distributed line. Um, My colleagues around the world, some of them are looking at various ways of using sensors and electronics and smart intelligence to be better about observing leaks or also doing predictive maintenance. You know, but at the end of the day, there's nothing uh, better than going in there and actually, you know, doing the physical repair and inspection.
3: So, Bill, then can you quantify or kind of give us the bottom line of what all of this aging infrastructure, the oversight for gas pipelines, both internal and buildings and overall across the United States, what, what does this all mean?
2: you're going to have more immediate problems and emergencies of unknown scale from small disruptions to potentially large failures that could affect thousands to even millions of people. You know, if our power grid goes down for extended periods because of certain failures in infrastructure, that's very expensive uh, to society.
3: So what can building managers do? First off, Keep in mind that these new visual inspection regulations are being implemented in New York City a little at a time. They're starting with Staten Island and making their way around the boroughs. But as the regulation suggests, a little precaution and proactive action can go a long way. For example, if you smell gas, certainly call 911 or the utility company and report all of those potential gas leaks immediately. The odor, of course, which is frequently described as smelling like rotten eggs, should always be reported. Evacuate residents or tenants until the fire department arrives. One tip that experienced building managers have is sending a plumber or the superintendent of the building to supervise the response. That action, they say, may prevent an unnecessary shutdown in service. And at the very least, they can inform residents or tenants about what is happening. So when the fire department or the utility company arrives, they use special equipment to measure the gas levels. So if the gas level is strangely high, they're going to shut it off until the leak is plugged. If the fire department doesn't detect a gas leak, but the odor persists, it pays to be persistent. That's according to Helen Mayers, a property manager with the Andrews Organization. She says that in an incident she had in Soho, the fire department had initially cleared the property. They came and used a a gas leak detector, but nothing registered. However, the following day, we got the same report and brought in a plumber. They checked every pipe, and finally, they traced the leak to a corroded line that led to the street. Once again, an abundance of caution, proactive action, and consumer education can go a long way, O'Brien says.
2: I, I do remember being in graduate school In a gas-fed housing apartment and a new new resident just came in and said i smell gas is that a problem it's like well well yes let's let's report that right
3: for market scale building management i'm shelby skerhawk
0: all right everyone that does it for today's episode of the market scale building management podcast show hope you enjoyed this insight from mike from bill from shelby it was definitely chock full of cool reactive trends within building management I feel like professionals can keep an eye on New York City as potentially industry shaping for new regulations, uh, hopefully new innovations as well. They're definitely a tight city when it comes to space and usable space. So I'm sure we'll see some co-working trends come out of NYC as well in the coming future. Stay tuned to market scale Building Management for all of that content. So again, thank you for listening, everyone. And if you like what you heard and want to listen to more, You can head to MarketScale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. And if you feel like you have something to contribute to the podcast show, you want to be featured, or you know someone who you think would provide some groundbreaking insight, please hit me up. I always am looking forward to hearing from our audience. You can reach me at daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. Again, daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. Litwin is spelled L-I-T-W-I-N. Look forward to hearing from all of you. So again, I'm Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.